Welcome to The Congressional Record, a podcast by ProLegis. Each week, we bring you a deep dive into Congress's policy priorities. In this podcast, we'll cover the processes unique to the first branch of government and discuss some of the pressing policy issues legislators are working on. This week, we have a special episode from our Appropriations Roundtable event earlier this month. The event is hosted by ProLegis' Director of Public Policy, Jason Lemons, and includes panelists Mark Harkins and Kimber Colton. Mark Harkins is a senior fellow at Georgetown's Government Affairs Institute and is a former legislative director. Kimber Colton is a former counsel in a member office. In this episode, you'll hear from these experts on the timeline for the appropriations process, how to work with the appropriations committees, and how to choose community funding projects. ProLegis is a new policy technology company founded by former congressional staffers and startup alums. We have one mission, to offer free tools that make it easier to learn about, track, and deepen your understanding of policy issues and legislation. We offer free features such as U.S. code redlining and a personalizable dashboard to track the legislation and congressional activity that matters to you. We also offer nonpartisan, unbiased information through our briefings and podcasts. Sign up for a free account today to get full access to the suite of policy tools on ProLegis.com. Thank you guys for both being here. I really appreciate it. Um, and I think this will be an interesting discussion. Obviously, the president's budget request just got in- released last week, um, kicking off the FY23 cycle. And you know, I think it's a great time to have this discussion, because I'm sure a lot of you, if you're not already, are preparing to deal with the appropriations requests. Um, so I was wondering, Mark, if maybe you could kick us off with a little bit about the key milestones in the appropriations process, just as a setting. Sure. So as you well know, the the president's budget drop is the starting gun, essentially, for appropriations. Um, It's what the appropriators will use as their touchstone um, for putting together the bills. Um, Yes, it's dead on arrival, but it's not totally dead for any of the Princess Bride fans here. Uh, It's just mostly dead. Um, But even that being said, it's 85% of what's, or even 90% of what's in the budget's president, the the president's budget drop, is actually what's going to end up being in those bills that you see at the end of the year. Um, Yes, that other 10% has some importance to it, but but a lot of it's there. So the president's budget gets that started. The appropriations committees will start holding hearings. The budget committee will start holding hearings um, on a good year. and, And we're starting off a little late, but on a good year. Um, the House will try to finish up its bills in June and July off the House floor, which means the committee will try to be looking at bills in mid-May to mid-June. Um, understand we're already a little bit late, so condense that time frame a little bit. Um, and politics rears its ugly head, as you may know, and not every bill necessarily will find its way off the House floor. But that's kind of the beginning of the House process. And to be able to do that, the committee needs to take in a lot of information. Um, And it's right now is when the ears are open. Now is when the staffers are taking in the information. It's when the committee is looking for things. I believe it was, it's just today actually, that the the committee is starting to take requests. God forbid any of you who can get your requests together already, (laughs) give it to the committee. You are crazy people. Um, You know, if it wasn't for the last minute that we'd get nothing done, kind of is what I expect. Um, But they are looking for members requests starting today, but They also will take in a lot of information from interest groups. They'll take in information from the agencies themselves. You're going to start to see a lot of hearings that are going on um, where the different people will come. And what I I say is they will sing for their supper, um, which is what Kimber and I are doing. Um, You will sing for your supper and and defend the the president's budget request. Um, The Senate tends to be just a touch behind um, from the House. Uh, They tend to be just a little bit later. And that's historic in nature. It, it doesn't always work that way, but it, it tends to work that way. Um, no money may be drawn from the Treasury, but consequence of appropriations and law is one thing. Um, no revenue, all revenue bills must originate in the House, is also in the Constitution. Every appropriations bill kind of has some revenue element to it. Money will be coming in, and so the House has claimed, we get them all, and the Senate's like, pat on the head, fine. 
Um, Kimber and I spent all of our time in the house, so you're going to hear us maybe disparage the powdered wigs a little bit. <laughs> Just get used to it. But the Senate will get along and get their things done. Now, the last few years, they haven't necessarily gotten along or gotten their things done. Um, I don't believe the Senate has passed a bill off the Senate floor in the last two years, um, and we may see continuation of that. That doesn't mean we don't get the process done. They also are in the same role as the House. They're going to be taking information in that same April, May time frame, maybe a little bit into June, um, and the committee staffs will start to, to put together their bills, and the senators will also be putting in their requests um, for information. So that's the kind of the, the touchstones going forward. And then if all is well with the world, you know, we get things done by the end of September. The world's a little sick right now. Um, it's not all well. Um, and, and I believe that it is unlikely you will see an appropriations bill done before the election. Uh, the politics is just wrong. We can talk about it if we want to. But just assume that we're going to see a continuing resolution um, at least until November, December timeframe. And then depending on what happens with the election, we may see another continuing resolution to February or March. But those are the basic outline, I think. That's perfect. No, that's really helpful. And I think that speaks to one of the follow-up questions I, I kind of had for both of you. And I know that I'm, I'm stretching your, your experience a little bit, but you know, what, what are the appropriations committees trying to learn right now through the hearings exactly? Like what, what is their thought process? What, what information are they trying to get? Sure. Um, I think the first round of the hearings usually is always with the budget officials from the government agencies. And so there's going to be a lot of attention on what was just submitted last week and what those budget requests contain. And the CJs, which are the Congressional Justification Books, um, that go into a lot of detail about what the individual agencies want and departments want, will be on uh, like the docket for the hearing. And so there's a process there where the committee is, you know, some of it a little bit is a little bit pro forma, particularly when the party in the majority is the same as the party that is in the White House. Um, that, but it's still an opportunity for the members to ask their questions about particular programs or things particularly important to their districts that they want to have the departments delve into a little bit more. So any area that the committee might be thinking of plussing up um, looking ahead at what the markups will be that Mark just mentioned in the May, June, July timeframe, there may be some things that they want the, um, the department heads, the, the secretaries to justify or talk through with them and have that on the record. So that helps build some information on the record in the hearing record for things that the committee might do later. Um, and so they will be asking a lot of questions at the departments um, around that. And then also for the individual members who may have specific things very you know, local in their district, things that they want to ask questions about, this is their opportunity with a secretary in front of them to ask that question. So the hearing process will allow all of that to, to take shape. Um, and then as they kind of go a little bit further into the hearings, you sometimes have the public witness hearings, which you all probably um, have, you know, sometimes people from your districts might want to be a witness um, at a public witness hearing, or they will have some subject matter hearings um, that are hot topics particularly going on at the time. And so last, you know, with everything, a lot of things being hybrid, that may be a little bit easier because you can get witnesses to participate from out of the area and they don't have to fly to DC anymore. Um, but there's some hearings that take place around that usually in this time frame before May and June and July when the markups start. And so the committee's kind of going through all that now. Um, and sometimes they even start the hearings before the president's budget comes out because they want to take advantage of that time when the members are around and they're in session. So the committee can be pretty busy in the spring leading up to the time when the markups start in earnest, um, usually, like Mark said, in another month or so. And is there any sort of negotiation, or what, what are the types of discussions that are happening in the committee right now, um, sort of coming up with a coordinated strategy around conversations, or sort of starting to negotiate on levels? So the first half, yes, there'll be some discussions. The second part, they're not looking at levels yet. They truly are antenna open, bring in information. They don't even know what numbers they have to aim at. 
I mean, an appropriator cannot write an appropriations bill until they have what's called a 302B allocation. They know what's going to be in that bill. Um, what, what, what's their number that they get to get, get at? Um, that's normally what holds the whole process up. Um, appropriators, if you give them a number, they'll write you a bill. Um, now, you want a bill that'll pass? That may need a different number. <laughs> um, but those are th that's kind of the activity that you have going on. So right now, they're on total information taken. At some point, probably because we're a little late, I would guess it's going to be between the May 1st and May 15th timeframe. Appropriations Committee staff will do something called going dark, which means they will not respond to you unless you're an Appropriations Committee, unless your boss is on the committee, because they actually have to write the bills. Um, and so all the information that's coming in, they cut off that antenna. They stop listening. They'll take in what they can. They may ask questions to get more information out, but they're not going to be just free open to take in information. So keep track of that too, especially if your boss is not on the Appropriations Committee, that there will be that time period at which they kind of shut down, um, at least to staff. Members always can walk in the door, right? Um, but, but at least to staff, be ready for that. And the thing I'd say about that too is, I mean, partially that tends to be um, out of necessity for them because I, th I think if the deadlines are tr are on track for what the um, community project funding is this year, that's like April 27th, 28th, 29th, everything's due in. So they're going to be deluged. All of a sudden now that database is locked, everybody's submissions are in for both their program requests and their community project funding requests. So now it kind of flips over to committee staff to do all the vetting on that. And, and that's just overwhelming. I mean, that's just a lot to do. So there's partially out of necessity, um, it's important to ask your questions and reach out to them before that date because it does get harder for them um, to, to respond after that because they're completely deluged with what's come in on those deadline dates. That's really helpful. I think. Um one thing I'd ask is, is that sort of the total of the things they do to prepare for all the, the deluge of members' requests, or are there other things that they're, they're doing internally to sort of get ready? Well, one of the things they're doing is what Kimber was talking about before, which is the congressional budget justifications are critical. And so they're reading those, they're dissecting those, they're parsing them. Um, the agencies will have staff follow-ups, they'll have staff briefing days where they may have open briefing days where anybody can kind of come in when they when the budget first dropped last week but now they're going to have especially for the military but for other places as well they're going to have staffer follow-ups um, where the the budget staff will come in not just the principals who are mainly the people who are at the hearings um, who are testifying but they're going to have the the that budget staff come in and say okay we know you started drawing this up 12 months ago things may have changed a little bit talk to me What's changed? What, in your budget submission, we know some stuff isn't right. The cost of fuel, significantly more than it was. Inflation, significantly higher than what you budgeted for when you were looking at September and October when you were putting this stuff together. Where do we need to modify the numbers to account for that? So that's really what they're doing at this point, is taking in that information, making sure the numbers make sense. Because ultimately, they don't have enough money. Right? No appropriation subcommittee has enough money to do what needs to be done. So what they're trying to do is figure out what's the risk by my not funding this? What's the risk that I buy down by funding this? And those agencies have to justify those risk numbers and try to help them with that risk assessment. Okay. Um, and so I think I'd be curious to hear this, what is their thought process when they're considering, once the actual members requests come in and the programmatic or the community pr project funding come in? How are they thinking through those and what sort of factors get them approved or not approved? I think one thing that's um, really, I think, very clear from the guidance that they give out is the importance of community buy-in and community need for the projects. They repeat that numerous places in the guidance um, these days. And that's something a little bit different than back mm -hmm. several years ago when our, um, our first you know, go-rounds on the Hill many decades ago almost. Um, um, but in the last you know, five years, and, and definitely since um, the new community project funding has come in, that's been very clear in their guidance that they want community support for each project. And so I think that being able to um, submit that along with the projects is very important and will, something that they're taking very seriously. Um, I 
can't say that's you know for every single project, but it's it seemed to be something that they are wanting the members to have spent some time on thinking through before they submit. Is this something that they will be able to say was supported by the community and um, have kind of maybe not overall community support. It doesn't mean it has to be unanimous, but there has to be a subset of the community that's going into that supports it. Either they've, you know, there's been newspaper articles about it or letters from local um, government officials or nonprofit organizations beyond the grantee that want this in their area. And um, so I think that kind of hurdle is one of the first ones that the, that the project has to meet. Okay. Another is just some of the basic, um, you know, eligibility requirements. It's really tricky, but some of the programs um, that are eligible for the community project funding, and this year there are a few more than last. So in FY23, they added a few more program areas that you can submit an, an earmark from um, than, in the, than last year in fiscal year 22. And they also upped from 10 requests per member to 15. So those two things have changed, but in many of the specific accounts, the account eligibility requirements are pretty strict. Um, in particular, one that comes to mind is like under USDA in agriculture. Some of the rural um, area, there's two I think, maybe more, um, like Reconnect and some others, community facilities, where you have to meet some very strong rural qualifications in order to be eligible for funding under that account. So those just very baseline, is this project agent even eligible? And for the members, as you're submitting for your bosses, that's important to make sure that that is done because unfortunately, if you submit a list of 10 and three of them get knocked out because of an eligibility requirement, that doesn't mean you get another go round at, at submitting. Um, maybe somebody will take mercy, but I, I wouldn't count on it. Like you've got to, make sure that those things are really looked seriously at. So I think that the committee's, you know, very serious about those things. Does it meet the eligibility requirements? Does it meet this need for um, community support? And so when we did these back in the day, um, and I still think this is a valid thing now, it, it's use the agencies to help you out, right? Um, use the grantees to help you out. Where, where there's sophistication in the grantees, see university, right? where there's sophistication, they should be able to tell you who at the agency has told them this is a good idea, that, that we can make this work. You should have no compunction about saying, hey, in defense it was, who in the building is gonna say yes to this, right? Because the staff isn't gonna vet these just by looking at the rules. They're gonna take the list and hand it to the agency. Right? They don't have the time to look over all of these individual requests. They're gonna say to the agency and to the agency budget officer, Hey, is this stuff okay? Will this work? Does this, does this qualify? Have that pre-checked, right? Not that you have to do it, as long as there's sophistication again in your grantee. Make sure that they are doing the check. And even if there isn't, maybe it's a nonprofit that really doesn't have a whole lot of experience. Ask them to do that work. That should be part of your form. One of the boxes should essentially be, who at the agency says yes to this, right? And not that you have to give that information out back to the committee, although it's extraordinarily useful, but it's important for you to have so that you have that pre-check, so that you don't have those three projects that don't get funded, like Kimber said. And particularly, again, if you have a an, an, um, grantee who isn't aware of some of these eligibility requirements or may not be sure if they meet them, um, I do think that a lot of times they may have, though, a contact at the agency, like that Mark just said, that they've worked with on something else. Maybe they've gotten you know, CDBG for many years and now you're trying to get them an EDA or EDI and you can ask them to go to someone else you know, to kind of follow the trail and find someone that can give them that answer because it is very helpful if they can do that work. And you may, you may have to coach them a little bit on what it is that you're trying to do, but they will um, be able to usually find out. Sometimes it's not the answer they want to hear, but at least you'll know that there is definitely that box checked as far as are they really eligible. Okay. Um, and so how would the thought process change for you know, programmatic requests or bill or report language requests? Sure. Again, it, up until you know, last fiscal year, that's really the only way members had to sort of show their priorities over the last decade or so was to kind of 
advocate strongly for different programs. And um, usually for that, there's less about eligibility, right? That doesn't exactly fit into this box. But the way that um, the committees are looking at that, it's a little combination of what Mark said earlier as far as, you know, definitely having um, built your case for why there is a need for this increase in funding, whatever unmet need there is, I think members can always come up with, you know, we just need to double this budget or we just need to triple this program. That makes the committee's job hard. You, you want to make it easier for them. They've got a lot to do. So to be able to go to them and say, you know, this is the, you know, 50,000 families that will be able to get this service or this is the, you know, um, amount of jobs that will be created if we put this new um, system in place. That's, again, hard to do, but even things that are estimates in that, in that way that provide like an unmet need, that kind of acts as the justification for the program increase that you're looking for. And then again, less so with, com like you're not really looking for community support as much, but the member support. Um, so, you know, that's where the sign-on letters come in and being able to say, you know, is this bipartisan? Is it something that's, you know, across regions? This isn't just a program that my boss wants for our district. It's something that will have a wider range of support and be able to help the committee convince others that it's a good bill. This increase will kind of help in the end game to, to garner support for the bill overall. And I think to Kimber's point, the more you make the committee think, the less likely it is you're gonna get what you want. I mean, I think that's just a rule of thumb to go by. The more you can give them the package with the ribbon around it, the more likely it is that they're gonna be supportive. It's easier, right? If you've got a choice between something that's hard, I gotta spend some time thinking about it, and a project that was given to you that just makes perfect sense and it's got all the boxes checked, which one are you gonna put on the boss's list, right? I mean, odds are the easy one. Not always, sometimes the other one has merit, but just odds are the easy is easy. easier is the one that's gonna win the day. Um, well, so let's pivot a little bit to the thought process for sort of like a non-member or a, a member who's not on the committee. Um, and just starting with how do they even start thinking through all of these requests or, or sort of stakeholder interest in appropriations requests? Um, how do they identify their priorities? And how did you think through it as staffers? So I've got a great quick story on this. Um, so when I was Miller's chief of staff, we had two organizations bringing forward a request for education funding. They wanted something that was an education earmark. And one was kind of the, the, the who's who of education of the area. We know who these people are, it's great. And another group was kind of a nonprofit who was just kind of starting this out. Um, we had, the, the staff were kind of like, eh, you know, they're kind of equal, maybe the nonprofit's a little bit better, but they're fairly equal. And Miller said, okay, I, I've got to meet with the who's who of education people. They've got to come in the office. Yeah, we all know this is how this works. And so they came in and they did their pitch and then they walked, everybody shook hands and they walked out. And then Miller turned to us and said, do any of you know what the output of their project's gonna be? And we're like, well, I think they're kinda like, um, no, we really don't. Um, about the nonprofit, the other guys, what do you think their output is? Well, their output is this and this and teacher training, it's gonna be this to these kind of schools. Uh-huh, yeah, that's kinda how I read it too. You guys know which way to go. Um, and so while politics can easily play, make sure that you understand it. I mean, the, this is where the Warren Buffett quote really comes in. Um, he never got into derivatives because he couldn't understand them, right? And then it all fell apart in 08 and 09. And his quote was, when the tide goes out, you know who's swimming naked, right? When, when everything is going well, nobody knows what's going on. But when the water's gone, you know who's actually got real stuff. Right. And so that's, that would be my, that was my great one little story, but go ahead. Um, yeah, I think that the, it is definitely true that you, that, you know, any project that can, you know, point to their deliverables at the end of the day and, and kind of point to what that unmet need they're going to be able to provide, those are always um, important parts of it. I think as you're kind of going through that vetting process, even for member offices that are on the committee. I, and, and especially now that you're limited to 10 or 15 projects, which it was not many years ago and now is, um, my thought is that a, a kind of an unsung um, ally in this is your district offices. Um, 
as best you can closely work with them, I think often that is very, very helpful because they know on the ground sometimes kind of the nuances of how a project might be received. Um, if it is successful, what, how it will be viewed. Um, they know the players maybe than we do as ledge staff here in DC. Not always, but a lot of times they have a better feel for the people that are on the ground there that are going to be working on the projects. Will they be able to follow through? Do they have a good track record? Um, and is there upheaval within the organization that maybe, you know, we would never know meeting in the office, the member comes in and, meet, you know, they come to meet with us in DC for their, you know, half hour pitch and you may not know some of that. So working really closely with um, district staff, if you have a good district staff, um, the offices that I've worked with always have had amazing district staff. And so keeping them really plugged in in this process is very helpful. And I would think that would be equally true if you're on or off committee. Mm -hmm. But that kind of helps in that initial step of vetting, maybe in that first round where you're trying to get from, you know, 100 things that have come in to you um, to, you know, how are we ever going to get down to 10 or 15? Um, looking at that and getting some of their input might also be useful. So it's a little bit easier in the Senate, right? I mean, because they don't have these limitations. I mean, I was taking a look and there are a couple senators who made 90 requests. Um, some of those are joint requests, but, but there were some senators um, from, from your old state yeah. uh, in Maine who, who made significant um, requests. Um, New York, obviously, a lot of requests. Um, but geographic distribution of the requests, kind of important. Yeah. Um, especially more so maybe in a house office that's got a, a larger district footprint. Um, see the states out west. Um, obviously a Manhattan district, you know, which building gets the earmark doesn't really matter. Um, but, but when you have a large geographic area that you're covering, it may not always be the best projects who are the top 15. Sometimes you need to have the top projects from, so our district was Greensboro and, and Raleigh and we needed to make sure we balanced it out. And um, you know, even though maybe the projects in Raleigh weren't as good, we needed to make sure we had some from there and some from Greensboro and some from our border counties um, to the north. And so that, don't get caught up in a, okay, which are the best 15 because Geographic distribution can make something one of the best 15 because you need those votes too. And all of this is public record now, right? I mean, when we were doing it, it wasn't public record. And then it became public record over time. But we used to be able to make asks. We used to be able to, as Kimber alluded to, our letters would be like 10 projects for a bill. Now, we knew we wouldn't get more than three, and so we kind of fudged where we would do the leveling. Now it's a little different. Now you put in 10 or 15 project requests and you expect to get 10 or 15 project requests. Then we put in 10 requests on one bill and we'd hope to get three and the order mattered. But the other seven people we could tell we asked, they don't know what the order is, right? Now everybody not only knows the order, but they know the order across everything. Um, there's reputational risk here that you've got to guard against, besides just the process. You've got to guard against that representational risk of your member too. So make sure you have geographic distribution. And, and so I think following on with that, um, in, in the calling, when you maybe as a you know, agriculture staffer have identified some the projects that are most interesting to you or the things that you think are the best, were there processes within the office and sort of in the deliberation among office staff that worked best or that you saw as best practices for both advocating for the ones that you felt were important projects, but also just making sure that the office got the right representation in the end? Again, just to kind of go back to the idea of um, pulling in the district office, I felt like that those meetings were very productive and helpful for, um, again, more for the, the most recent um, iteration, but also back in the, you know, in the earlier, ten, before the 10-year gap. Um, um, I think that there was a lot of conversation, again, trying to figure out what back home would really resonate and be received well. And again, to Mark's point, I mean, if you have only 10 or 15 slots now, all of that just becomes much more um, critical, making sure that it's something that your boss is going to be proud to, to stand behind and do an event on um, and work on. It depends on the size of your state. Sometimes we did some you know, coordination with our delegation. Um, I worked both in states where we had 
small delegations. So we did work very well together on this particular process, talking to each other and letting each other know what projects um, we were considering, and same on programmatic requests too, what we were gonna be prioritizing and what were gonna be the, the big programs that we were going to go after. Because a lot of times, particularly in a small state, a program that benefits one half of the state also benefits the other. I mean, something around rural programming is, is important you know, for the whole state um, in Maine or North Carolina. So you want to be sure that you're coordinating on that. So I would say, um, I mean, unless it's a really contentious relationship, if you can work together, partisan, you know, completely bipartisan even on this area, I think it's helpful to have some level of coordination so that your state ends up um, also doing very well. I mean, you do want your boss to do very well, but there's a, a benefit in it in kind of being able to say in like a larger press story that the state had a really successful appropriations season and, and there's going to be a lot of money coming back to the state. That tends to be the way the articles are written anyways. So. Um, being able to work together on some of those things is, is usually pretty helpful. But be careful on trust issues. <laughs> uh, there, was a, there was a time where we got a bunch of earmarks in a bill. My boss was on that subcommittee, um, and we were doing the conference. We did real conferences. We were actually in a room together, right? The, Republic, the Republicans, Democrats, Senate, and House people were all in the same room together. Um, Kumbaya was not being sung, but we were all looking at the bill and looking at the final conference report. And so we were getting a list of what it was that we were going to get. And I was in the room doing this, and one of our Senate staffers came down and said, hey, do, do you have a list of what earmarks happened here? But yeah, we, I mean, it's on, it's on embargo until they finalize the bill, right? But yeah, we've got a list. We can take a look. They had nothing to do with it, right? They weren't on appropriations, nothing. Um, before I got back to the office, the press release had gone out. Um, so be careful. It's good to work with people. Take joint credit for things, but make sure that you don't get aced out. Again, this is the, the rabble talking about the powdered wigs a little bit. Um, it's single instance, doesn't always work that way. But you gotta be careful. It, it's, it's a hard process, Jason. It's, um, the more people you have in it, the more difficult it's gonna be. Um, I think you, do, at some level, have to trust your senior staff to get it right. I mean, this is, if you're not on the committee, um, the LAs can put forward their list. The LDs need to curate it. The chief of staff with the district director need to vet it. Um, and then they can decide who else they need to vet it with, to Kimber's point of vetting it with the district staff. If you're on the committee, you really kind of have to trust the folks who are handling the subcommittees um, or the full committee in this, this case that they get it right the first time. But it, it, it's the bigger, the more you open up the process, the more difficult it's going to be. And you don't have time for a difficult process. Um, no offense to folks who are further down the totem pole. Have your say, get your words in, but understand that it does have to be curated in a time frame that's just ridiculously tight. And the other element there, too, is um, communications team. So um, when you get to, I mean, I don't know at every step of the process, but definitely when you're kind of looking at a, a smaller version of your list, um, comms team is very helpful, too. Because, again, they will mm -hmm. say, you know, looking at it, you know, these are all great. I mean, I'm, I'm, this may not be what they say, but they may say these are all great, but this one is the one we really need to have. Like, I, you know, I don't, I don't care what else you guys put on this list of 15, but this one we need to do. Like, and that's a perspective that the comms team might have for whatever reason. Um, but usually they like to be involved and there is a benefit to their voice. Um, you know, maybe you have to judge when that becomes relevant for your particular office, but that can be really helpful. I totally agree. My wife was a press secretary on Capitol Hill, and um, a, a dookie, but that's okay. She was a press secretary on Capitol Hill, and um, she tells this great story. Now, this is back in the day before we had to publish all the lists, right? Okay. So her boss gets an earmark, right? She goes to the, the, the guy and says, hey, to the LD, hey, where did this come from? Like, can you give me the folder in the background? He's like, yeah, 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 I'll get it to him. And she comes back like two hours later. I need the background so I can put together the press release. He's like, let's go for a walk. So one of the situations where a member talked to a member and the subcommittee chairman just decided that he liked the other member and so gave them an earmark. Said, here, I'm going to give you money. Where do you want it to go? And they called up and they got the earmark. There is no background. There is no folder. And so the comm teams is out of the loop there and it's not helpful, right? Because if the tree falls in the woods and the voters don't hear about it, do you get the credit, right? And, and I think Kimber's exactly right when I was talking about the LD and the chief of staff. The comms team has got to be 
front and center at that point where you get to the chief of staff level or when you get to LD level before you get to the chief of staff and the district director because they do have that incredible vision which is not myopic to the legislative issue itself. They actually see the whole district or the whole state and that's really helpful. You should take advantage of that. Um, and so I think you've talked a lot about sort of constituent engagement around this. Do you have proactive strategies that you think are especially valuable um, for building support, identifying priorities, um, ad advancing, uh, advancing it into the appropriations process? Well, before the community funding, project funding um, initiative, when we were kind of in that 10-year period of just doing programming, um, we would um, occasionally have outreach sessions where we would talk in the district, and again, this was kind of pre-COVID, so everything was in person, but we'd go up and, and chat with um, members of communities to try to educate them a little bit about the appropriations process and about funding requests and how programs um, are important in the process and kind of what they could do to build a case for better um, programmatic funding back home. I think that would also be useful now that we're back to, to earmarks um, or community project funding. I think that's useful to also have some sort of outreach sessions if you can. Um, I think you know for a lot of people back in the districts, the appropriations process does seem like a little bit of um, a puzzle and, and it's hard for them to know if their organization is really should be eligible and then they'll see the list from you know last two weeks ago or three weeks ago come out and they're like, well, wait a minute, I have an organization very similar to this one. I didn't apply. I didn't really even know about it. Um, but, you know, I see that they got 200000 worth of funding. I should get in on this. So maybe for this coming year, they're going to be like, well, what is this all about? So I think, you know, in the past where it might have been more um, relevant for program stakeholders who really have an interest in a specific program, now it's even broader than that that entities back in the districts might be very intrigued by this appropriations process and want to know more. And so um, finding a way to do that a little bit maybe in the off season, like Mark mm -hmm. said, it's kind of crammed right now, right? Like there's a month of just complete deluge. It's almost hard to imagine doing outreach right now. But if, so a member's office that hasn't done that maybe over the winter might be a little bit at a disadvantage. But if you have been able to do that or look forward to the fall or winter, to have some outreach meetings with stakeholders, you know, maybe your, um, you know, your local chamber of commerce organizations or your state's coalition of cities and your coalition of nonprofits, all those kind of groups that maybe you could sit down and meet with and talk to them about the process in like one fell swoop, mm -hmm. rather than trying to do one-off meetings with every hospital in your district. Maybe you can do one with the entire hospital association for your state, things like that. If you can get them to play nice. Yeah, exactly, if they'll sit down together. Um, but there's things like that that you can kind of be doing year long yeah. to kind of help with the outreach. That way you don't get as many calls in the next month where people are like, okay, wait a minute, I heard about this free money that's going out, can I get in on it? Because that conversation's kind of hard to have in April. So two quick things. Um, one, you've got a list on the cutting room floor from last year. 11 through 20, right? That were probably good. Or 11 through like 100. Yeah, well, we'll go 11 through 20 were pretty good that are worth talking about again, and then the rest of them you can decide. Uh, another organization, along with what Kimber was saying, I think every state has an association of community foundations. Um, community foundations are incredibly good at this because, again, and I talk about sophisticated folks, right? You talk about people who've got maybe even advocates or lobbyists they don't need any help. They found you. They know how to do it. It's the folks who don't have that capacity because they're just barely getting by doing what they're doing. Um, the community foundations know which ones of those are good, uh, which ones of those are problematic, um, and where to take a look. And so I would highly recommend um, having a conversation with whoever the director is of the community or having the district director talk to whoever's the head of the community foundation to say, hey, you know, we're trying to do this. We're trying to make sure that we reach out to everybody. As Kimber was saying, you want everybody to be there um, to hear about it because they're going to, or to understand it. That's that's a quick vet um, that you don't have to do yourself, but that you can usually trust. So that's a lot about sort of getting the request to come in. Are and you talked a little bit earlier about 
you know, reaching out to them and seeing who they've been in touch with in terms of executive branch agency that they might be over. Are there any other things that these outside organizations can do or you can engage them to do to help you build support in Congress for uh, a proposed particular earmark or programmatic request? Here's the dirty little secret, right? If they get the support of your office, they don't need the support of Congress. As long as it meets the eligibility requirements and you have it high enough on your list. So you need these organizations to make it obvious where there is benefit for all. Um, and, and the benefit for the elected official is people are going to like this. They're going to hear I did this and they're going to think, hey, it's a good person. We should vote for her, right? Um, that, that's kind of the quid pro quo here. So any time that the organization can show, as Kimber was saying before, this more broader-based um, support, um, that's going to be helpful. I don't have to go find out whether this is supported by the community or not if you bring me the information. And if you can do it across various organization types, if you can get the Chamber of Commerce together with the AFL-CIO, together with whatever, um, to say that this is something we think is good, okay. I mean, because I may be somebody who tends to be more right, or I may be somebody who tends to be more left, but if you can show me that there's support across the political spectrum for something like this, great. Because at least it means the side that I'm not leaning towards so much maybe won't dislike me as much. There's positive in that. Yeah, okay, they won't vote for me, but maybe they won't dislike me as much. In this process, that's not a bad thing. And I think the thing I would add, too, um, is that for the committee, um, like Mark said, it's not necessarily that they need, you know, that the grant, potential grantees need to get support from the committee outside of the boss who's submitting it, because the, the member who's submitting it is really the one that's vouching for it. But um, kind of along the lines of what we were saying before is, you know, that they really want the community project funding support. They want the stakeholders in the local community to want it. Again, that makes it easier for them. Um, it, it's also, verse, the thing that's different now than was many years ago is just the importance of the transparency and the importance of the project being like completely above board. Just, they're completely, you know, meeting all the requirements, no, no members have an interest in it, it's something that the, the community wants, it's a good organization. Um, all those kind of elements that were important before, but maybe didn't have quite the microscope on them that they do now. I mean, th this process was gone for 10 years because of a reason. <laughs> it was being abused and they stopped it. And so for it to come back, they really want it to go well and they want it to be a good, solid program um, or process that the members can point to in a positive way. And so again, for as long as the potential grantees are coming to you with all of that kind of, you know, very clearly, you know, the box is checked. That makes it easier for the committee because they are going to have any anything where there's even the slightest tinge of it not meeting some sort of requirement that has to do with ethics or disclosure, it's not going to make it. So that on top of the other elements make, you know, the committee probably isn't as concerned about all the other areas of it, but there are certain things that they definitely want to make sure are okay. Um, and I think going to, you know, sort of non-earmark requests, what are some of the key elements, uh, you, and you talked a little bit about this, just of building the coalition for support in Congress um, around that? Well, I think the idea of the sign-on letter kind of has took on a whole new life um, during the 10-year period when there were not community project funding. So that became kind of the um, system for building support and really creating that. Um, one thing we didn't talk too much about kind of before when Mark start, talked about the start of the process and the president's budget being the opening gun, the starter gun on it, um, maybe a few months before that, there's a little bit of an opportunity with OMB for members to reach out or organizations to be meeting with them to be trying to get in the president's budget. So like Mark said, 90% of everything that's in the president's budget is going to be the same stuff in there at the end. So if you can get the president's budget to include that program that you wanted at the funding level you wanted at that stage, rather than the appropriators having to add it in later, that is an important um, kind of key 
area that you could maybe work on. Again, this is usually like fall and winter, I'd say. Um, but when they're doing that first iteration of the budget, the passbacks between OMB and the agencies, um, there is a little window there where you can have some influence and meetings can be had um, where stakeholders are trying to get in with OMB officials and department heads to try to talk about raising levels for programs. So I'd say there's a little window there where you can also try to influence the process so that your program or that program that your boss really loves um, and is really important to your state has a good number going into the president's budget at the get-go. And that is something that sometimes gets lost, um, but it, it can be very helpful. Yeah, the legislative branch doesn't really know how to work with the executive branch. You, you, we just we don't. I mean, I get it. Um, but what Kimber's talking about is the one place where you really should. Uh, if you know your boss really wants a program, it works a lot in defense, obviously, but it also works in, um, in transportation, um, housing and redevelopment, um, EPA, these are, these are major programs where uh, trying to get money into them um, at the front half makes a lot of sense. When you're at the point where we are now, it's, it's national organizations, right? Um, you don't have a lot of time to head up a cosign letter and to walk it around and to get everybody on the phone to say that the boss will sign it and to make sure somebody's there who can sign it. I mean, you want to, um, you want to have these national organizations who are driving it. Um, as much as possible, because they'll have more bodies on the ground. They'll have contacts in each one of these offices. It's not just that you happen to know this person because you ride the same elevator occasionally, right? Um, and by the way, you should always be hitting up everybody on your hall for anything you're doing that's of national interest. Get off your phones, keep your heads up, meet people. Okay, sorry, different, different class, different, different lecture. Um, but, um, but those national organizations are the ones that are going to do it. I mean, for most of these programmatic things, they're going to have national impact. Um, the ones that are localized, you're going to know who the localized ones. I mean, if you're talking about the warthog, right, um, for those who are in defense and know about a small plane that defense doesn't want anymore, but the people who have them at their air bases still want them, those people will come together naturally. Um, but these, more, these bigger things like, can we make sure we have enough funding for public housing renovation over time and to make sure that we have enough for the operations and maintenance of parks? Um, those are national organizations. Um, if you can get your boss out in front of those, let me tell you, I, we, got, we were the lowest ranking Democrat when the Republicans were in charge on an appropriation subcommittee. We didn't have a whole lot going for us as far as being able to be, yeah, yeah, we're the guy. Um, but when Price was there, one of the things we became the guy on was uh, veterans medical research. We became the veterans medical research folks. Now, there was a veterans hospital attached to, to Duke University in Durham there, so we had a, a reason. But nobody else was willing to help these guys out. Um, we weren't willing to help those guys out. And, and Price being a touch more on the progressive side, um, we weren't always the biggest fans of the veterans, especially when we vote against constitutional amendments on flag burning. But the fact that we were willing to be the, the person who was willing to advocate and to be the lead on this letter for veterans uh, research and education, that was huge. That got us, um, again, people not disliking us so much and actually people grudgingly supporting us. Um, so look at those, take advantages of those opportunities where your boss really cares about something. They don't have to be on appropriations for that to work. Um, it helped that he was on appropriations, but it didn't have to be there. If you can find some issue like that, some little niche where you can be the person, great. Knock that out. And then there was an organization, NAVREF, um, which was a national organization, National Associations for Veterans Research and Education Fund, I think. Um, and, and they did most of the hard work. They pitched it, we said yes, and then they did the work, and then we looked good. That's what you want. And now I think, I mean, everybody here could probably comment, but I don't think there you actually need physical signatures anymore, right? Like, I think you can do it all by email and autosig. So that's a huge, like, so that element of the time yeah. is gone. So, like, take advantage of that. Like, that gives you, you know, extra time to work on one. Definitely take advantage of that because, like Mark is saying, it, it's, it's great for your boss. I mean, obviously, the program that you're supporting, it helps them a lot to have a champion, too. It's like a win-win when you can find those. Understanding the annual appropriations process has never been more simple than with Prolegis' appropriations tool. 
The tool is a one-of-a-kind, easy-to-use searchable database that provides historical context for federal government spending bills and contains appropriations data from fiscal year 2016 to 2021 for every account and subaccount. Prolegis' appropriations tool can help staffers quickly identify appropriations levels and trends from previous fiscal years. Whether you're working on a policy memo, reviewing appropriations requests, or trying to understand Congress's appropriations decisions, the appropriations tool can help. Sign up for our free Prolegis account to get access to the Prolegis appropriations tool today. I've got a few more questions, but I think we're edging towards time when I'd love to open it up in case anyone in the audience has any questions. Um, so if you have, feel free to raise your hand and, and speak up. Yeah? Yeah, the House Armed Services Committee filed a request for community project funding, but they're not on a, I mean, how does that work? <laughs> Are we taking risks by ignoring that? So this is a special case. So House Armed Services Committee being an authorizing committee, um, when they pass their authorization bills annually, um, this is not real money, right? Uh, that being said, because they pass their authorizations bills annually and nobody else does, they do have more power in this discussion. Uh, the Appropriations Committee and the uh, uh, Authorizing Committee in this case do work hand and gloves a little tight. I mean, one finger maybe doesn't fit so well, but they do work together fairly well. So I would say that it makes it easier for the appropriators to be positive towards what you're asking for if the authorizers have already authorized that level or for that particular project. Um, again, uh, authorizers go first in this case. Uh, almost every year, you can tell me what year out of the last 20 they haven't, but almost every year the authorizers go first. And the appropriators, again, they don't match them word for word, but 95% you know, of the time they're gonna match them. It's just easier um, when you don't have the authorizers and appropriators fighting. because. At the end of the day, you still got to get these bills passed. And the Armed Services Committee, the last I saw, was around 70 people. That's a lot of votes um, that can be against you. It, it also works for transportation if you're in uh, there. I mean, again, highway bill is a little different because it's mandatory funding. But um, th there are a lot of votes in those committees. And the appropriators want to make those people happy where they can so they don't have a committee turn on them. I mean, it's hard enough when you have a party turn on you, right? Um, that you don't want a party and a committee turning on you. So I, I do think it, you do ignore it at your peril for that particular committee. Yeah, I would agree that it, they work together pretty well. And so, and given that authorizing tends to go first, um, the fact that the appropriators can look at that and say, okay, this already went through with no problem. We already know that it's, you know, something that at least that group of members supports to be able to added in on appropriations or advocated a second time in both of your letters, um, it, it does make it a lot easier. Uh, this is kind of forward looking, but if Republicans were to take back the House, would community funding funding uh, die for the second time, I guess? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I think the odds are it would, but the odds aren't as strong as they used yeah. to be. Um, if you take a look at the list, there are an awful lot of Republicans who got a fair amount of money. I, I, a smart, uh, some of the classes I teach are trying to help, each, uh, we tend to, at our organization, help the executive branch understand you guys. Um, so I'm kind of on the other side of the mirror today. But uh, one of the people I work with doing some of this is a former clerk of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. And she said, because I was like, you know, you heard me at the beginning. Ah, we're going to get a continuing resolution. We'll get another continuing resolution. She's like, yeah, we'll get one. I'm not sure we'll get another. We have an interesting dynamic right now where you have the top two appropriators in the Senate both retiring. It is not to their advantage for a continuing resolution to go beyond January the 3rd of next year. They're going to want to get these bills done. Okay? Um, the fact that the Republicans right now can stop earmarks that they want to in the Senate if they can find 41 people to do it. Um, and you had about 65 senators, give or take, who asked for earmarks. I mean, you might have the exact number, but it's around that plus or minus five. Um, but that plus or minus five is important because it's at least 60. Um, if these things take hold and if, as Kimber said, um, the committee finds that they're all above board and everybody's happy with it, right, there's more of a likelihood that they'll continue again. 
However, there is a concerted you know, group um, in the Republican Party who are against these things. And if they take over the majority again and they have a, a majority of the Republican caucus in the Senate says, we're going to ban these, then they're banned. I mean, it, it's hard to, you can't have single house right. earmarks. Right. right. The House puts a whole bunch in the bill and sends it to the Senate and says, we're not going to have any. Okay, that means we're not going to have any. Right. <laughs> it's not like the Senate's going to say, oh, you House guys, that's fine. We'll let you have this. That's cool. No, it's not cool. They're not going to let them have it. That's your point. Um, no, we, you guys, we jump in the back, actually. Yeah, you. Uh, yeah, so as someone who's relatively new to the Hill, myself and, you know, just getting suddenly flooded with requests <laughs> from, you know, education folks who I work with, you know, asking for money, asking for grants and these kind of things and trying to navigate that space. Do you have any other advice, um, things you wish you knew at the beginning, um, you know, back in your guys' careers working with appropriations? Um, the things that I should be utilizing, contacts I should be using, or people in positions like mine to make these, um, you know, negotiations, these processes easier to kind of get on top of things. Um, yeah, staying organized was really important. Um, it it sounds easy, but it it does it like overnight. It's just a deluge, and then all of a sudden you're like trying to catch up. That's how I always felt about it, um, and. If you're able to, um, you know, utilize some things that you won't have to recreate the wheel every year or every step in the process, you know, um, share documents, things that you can make, spreadsheets, I know it sounds awful, but yes, um, things that will make it kind of uniform so that at some point you'll be able to look at something easily and kind of be able to tell, all right, do the, does this group have everything in that they need to have in? Um, have I already talked to these people in the office about it? Have I already checked with the committee about these things? All those types of very mundane but processes that you set up will help you at every step in the way. Um, if the person who did this last year in your office didn't set that stuff up for you, um, you know, that's a little bit harder. But if you've got even some skeleton system from somebody before you that you can use, I would recommend that definitely. Um, I think that you know, being able to um, keep on top of everything, it's almost impossible, but knowing that you've got um, you know, a very good committee staff there to help you when you do hit a roadblock. I mean, when you've exhausted every other option to find out an answer to something, you can go to the committee and the subcommittee staff, um, and they will be able to, to help you. Or maybe it's a subcommittee staffer who you've worked with before I mean and even if you haven't but that you've like you know their name and you know that they work on that account in that like education area um, just being able to reach out to them again now not after you've submitted everything but in this like month period whenever there's a you know recess week district work period um, taking advantage of that because that will help you um, that way you're not stuck at the end with like a lot of lingering questions and you now you're at the deadline and you have to ask them all. I found sometimes that was really tricky. I kind of put a bunch of things in the, you know, problem bucket, you know, okay, I'll deal with these later. And then like it's a week out and I'm emailing this like committee clerk every other day and just hating myself for doing it. So trying to like, you know, get on top of those things a little bit earlier, the ones that could be, you know, have a lot of issues or that you need to check in about sometimes one thing that I found, probably in education, if you're doing that account, because there will be a lot that just on their face seem really worthy, right? Like they're going to be impossible to choose. They're all really good things probably coming across your desk. So trying to be able to um, navigate some of that early on. When Kimber's talking about emailing the clerk the week before, she worked for somebody on the committee. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she at least had a chance at getting a response. Uh, two things I would say. One, offload as much work as you can onto the people who are making the ask. Right? Make sure that they are properly identifying the accounts that they want this funding to come from. Then when you're working with the committee, and again, I think Kimber is exactly right, make sure that you're trying to contact committee staff when they're not in session. Right? Just the same way you don't want to be contacted on a Wednesday morning, don't try to send an email to an appropriation staff on a Wednesday morning when there's a <laughs> hearing. Just, just, just don't do it. Um, but um, make sure that the accounts that these folks are asking about actually are ones that they're going to do projects out of. Um, I've, a couple of times, even when I was in the outside, accounts that had been in the past used for projects 
all of a sudden stopped being used for projects. I was asking for a client when I was an advocate for a while, and I ended up getting nothing. I'm like, why not? I mean, my boss is on the committee. What, what the heck? Oh, they decided not to fund that, that account. The staffer in the office never made the ask to find out that they weren't doing it because it's really not the staffer's fault. It was my fault, the person on the outside, right? But make the outside folks do as much work as possible because you are going to be. It's crazed. Um, and you get a sliver of 10 or 15. You don't get all that. I know the two of us are like, oh, my God, I'm so glad we're not in that system because um, that, that makes this particularly difficult. Um, because of all the different things that the folks above you are going to have to weigh, the LDs, the chief of staff, the district directors, the communications team. Another thing I just thought of as you were mentioning that, um, sometimes, you know, early on in the process, if you're able to speak directly with your boss or maybe you have to go through your chief to, and your boss, but kind of getting a sense of, you know, if they had a vision of how they'd want to allocate these 10 or 15 projects, what, what do they want, direction do they want you to go in? Because you may end up spending a lot of time going in a direction and then, the week before everything's due, your boss is like, you know, I really think we should be focusing on insert whatever, you know? And it, That's not you're you. like, whoa, okay, I don't have a single project that fits that. You know, you don't want to be in that. So maybe like early on, and we did do this in, in my our member offices, but I heard that from other staffers and I always felt like that was a real cautionary tale, which again, we were, we proactively reached out to the, the boss so that I had in each time early in the process just to get a sense of, you know, what would you like us to maybe focus on? Maybe it won't be all of the projects, but are there some things that you want to make sure we do at the end of the day? And having that conversation early will save you so much um, angst later on. Yeah. And, and April 4th, we're not early in the process Yeah, that's anymore. not early anymore. <laughs> if you don't have it now, you need it. Yeah, just try um, to get on the schedule. You need it as soon as you possibly can. Um, I know you guys have covered this a little bit already, but if you guys could kind of give a, a recap or, or and feel free to make additions to just like a couple of different, you know, specific types of information that you found useful in pushed in advocating for your requests uh, on the Hill. Um, I think that for the, for the um, program requests and for the community project funding, I think um, being able to really sense what that um, unmet need is or kind of what you talked about, you know, what's the output going to be of this project. A lot of projects are very worthy, but being able to say, you know, this is what this money, you know, we're talking about a federal taxpayer investment in something. It's very important that we get it right. And what will, at the end of the day, the deliverable be? Um, if it's an unmet need, if it's a new initiative, but being able to really make that very clear um, helps the committee, but it also helps set your bus, boss up and communications team up for the story around the program or the project. Um, and I think sometimes organizations have a hard time giving that information. They, they want to be able to tell you, but sometimes they just can't. And that sometimes puts it in a different category than it, than it would have been otherwise. But being able to like have the, the project or the program really shows some, um, you know, I say deliverable, but I mean it more like you know an output that a benefit that's going to come from our investment here um, is something that I think you need to be able to have early on in the process. In, internally in your deliberations, who's the constituency that's going to be helped? Is it a local constituency? Is it a, 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 a minority group that's going to be helped? Is it um, whatever? Um, who are the constituencies that's going to be helped? Because you've got to balance these 15 against each other. And if you can lay out for your uh, LD, chief staff, comms folks, who you see what the, the, what the output is, what the deliverable, what, what that is, and who are the folks who are going to be helped, that allows them to better play the game. Because this is three-dimensional chess to some degree because of the way that you're limited. It's not just what are the best 15, right? I, I want to emphasize distributional of the uh, requests across the district. Not necessarily you're going to get every single one of them, right? But at least you've got to make that list look like you're trying to get it for every single one of them, right? We used to be able to get away with that. Like I said, we knew things that would get funding and things that wouldn't get funding, and we could still put those on the list and tell people, we asked for your thing. Um, you don't get that out anymore. <laughs> Everything you ask for, you're going to be scored against whether you got it or not. So you also want to make sure these are the 
feasible, right? You don't want to ask for $30 million for a community center, right? Not going to happen. And so you're not going to get that request. And so all of a sudden now, you're three for 15. It's only going to take academics a couple of years to figure out who the people are who are 14 for 15 and who are the ones who are five for 15. And then when the academics figure it out, it only takes another year or two before the voters figure it out. Um, another piece to think through is, um, you know, if some a project does come in and says, you know, we need $10 million or $30 million, and you're like, okay, that's not going to happen, but the committee might give you one, or the committee might give you, you know, $500,000, um, what would they be, would they be able to use that? I mean, some projects can scale down very easily. They could say, yes, that'll pay for this particular thing if you gave us, but some again, can. I mean, it's particularly some big transportation projects, some things that are very um, big in energy and water, um, you might not be able to scale down. And so even though it may be very good and if it, they need that money and you might be able to still put them on the list at a smaller amount, if they're not going to be able to do much with a smaller amount, that means that they're not really the best for this, um, this process. There may be other ways your boss can get engaged and help them with the agencies in the department. It doesn't mean like you just walk away, but you have another opportunity to talk to them about other opportunities because this may not be the funding stream. And I mean, there are some very big funding streams within the community project funding area, but they're not all. Some of them tend to be low dollar amount type things. And so if that's what you're facing, you may have to kind of pivot them into something else. And um, knowing that up front is helpful too, because the committee will, you know, sometimes they will fund something, but not at the level you requested. And that can be hard if that isn't something that the committee's gonna actually use, I mean, the program can actually use, or the project can actually use. That's all for this episode of the Congressional Record. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to sign up for your free ProLegis account if you haven't already. You can go to ProLegis.com, that's P-R-O-L-E-G-I-S.com, to find additional show notes and sources for each of our episodes. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Our handles are in the episode notes as well. We'll see you next week on the Congressional Record.